Few things are as controversial as evolution. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. I'm Kevin Harris, your co-host, and today we're going to tackle a topic, why teach evolution? This is part of a two-part series, and today's program can be downloaded at evidenceandanswers.org. So be sure you go to evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, we have a special guest today. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. We have joining us again my colleague from Probe Ministries, Dr. Jan Chatham. She's a research associate with Probe Ministries, and she has a doctorate, her PhD in neurophysiology. And so, Jan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Pat. Jan, we're talking about why we should be teaching evolution to our children before they enter the collegiate classroom. And just briefly summarize for us some of the things we went over last week. We were talking about how that the pre-college student needs to have a good foundation of evolution so that they will know what they're going to face once they get to college. It is not enough to know just what they believe, but they need to know why they believe what they believe in order to not be eaten alive once they get to the academic setting in a college situation. Right, and one of the important points that you brought up is that the education of the children should not be abdicated to the public schools or to the teachers, that parents, youth pastors, grandparents, that we all have a responsibility in training our children to discern truth from error. Absolutely. Picking up on that, let's say for the sake of argument that you've convinced the parents to begin teaching evolution at home. I hope so. Are there different ways to approach your child depending on their age? Yes, actually there there are some. Now, go back to our discussion last week and we talked about the concept of isolation versus insulation. And and some of the parents want to just isolate their children and, and not talk about evolution at all and just quarantine them and put them in a bubble. And we already talked about last week how that's not going to work. And the other flip side to that was to insulate them and go over the evolutionary issues that they may hear and encounter in the college setting. And the goal of insulation was to keep them from being indoctrinated in non-biblical issues. So there are, with that goal in mind, there are some activities and objectives that will depend on the age of the student. If you're familiar at all with classical education, um, from birth to about fourth grade is called the grammar stage. And that's where they are learning the facts of life, the facts of the world around them what happens. But then come about fifth to eighth grade, our students enter into a logic stage. And it's not just what is happening, but now they're starting to put and piece things together about how does that happen or why does that happen? And then from ninth to twelfth grade is is the most fun stage. It's the, the rhetoric stage or the stage of discernment. And these are the kids that can read a piece and and form a conclusion based on their ability to distinguish and discern. You know, that's empty words, that's spin, that's misinformation, that's opinions, that's propaganda, and that's accurate information right there. So the ninth through 12th grade is a great age to work with as far as being able to take some of those activities and practice with them before they get to a university setting. There's a few things, though, Pat, that I would, as a parent, I would want my child to definitely know before they get off to college. And and if it's okay, I'd like to just run through some of those with you. That'd be great. Um, First of all, our children need to have a very good concept of worldview. And what is a worldview? And I love the way Walt Mueller, he's the author of Engaging the Soul of Youth Culture. I love the way he puts it. He says, from the moment they are born, kids marinate 
in a mix they absorb through the pores of their life. Eventually, it all becomes a part of who they are, shaping their values, attitudes, and behaviors. Now, that is a great description of of a worldview. Our kids are marinating in a mix, and it's seeping into their pores, and it, it establishes their attitudes and the choices that they're going to make. You know, I think of some of this, what is in this marinating mix, and I, and I often use Kirby Anderson's statistics that he gives on the Probe website. But by the time our students graduate from high school, they will have watched 22,000 hours of television. Now, just to give you a little a little baseline, from first grade to 12th grade, they're only in school 11,000 hours. So they are watching double the amount of TV than they are having formal education. That's part of the marinating mix that Walt talks about. The average person will have listened to 10,500 hours of music. That becomes part of the marinating mix. The average teen will spend 10,000 hours on the Internet, and I've got a feeling that's probably a, a statistic that needs to be increased a little bit. The average number of movies that our teens watch is six per week. That, that's movie theater, HBO, on the TV, whatever. And this is all part of that worldview that is establishing their, their worldview, that mix that goes to establishing their worldview. And, you know, it's kind of scary, but I wonder how many hours of church you know, if we were to calculate the number of hours they spend in church, I'm afraid we don't mm. want to know the answer to that question. Mm. Or just the uh, studying their Bible exactly. or engaging in biblical theological discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so establishing a worldview, I have taught that concept as low as fourth grade, and they are beginning to get it. Fourth graders can get an, an idea of what is a worldview. And I, and I use some of those statistics with them. But when you talk about a worldview... You're setting up for your student, you're setting up the idea that once they hit that college professor's classroom, the information they're going to be hearing is coming through a certain worldview. And just for the sake of, of, of simplicity, let's just say theistic worldview, which biblical worldview versus humanistic worldview. And I know there's other worldviews, but let's just keep it simple like that. Most of our college professors are going to be coming from a humanistic worldview. And a humanistic worldview says humans are the highest authority that there is. And this man is the highest. The buck stops with man. And so those professors, because of that worldview that they embrace, they have to teach evolution. They can't teach that there was a creation and a creator because man is the highest. And therefore, because man is the highest, man's opinion is what sets up truth. Versus a theistic worldview or a biblical worldview, if you have that as your foundation, you believe that there is a higher authority than you. And so, therefore, you can embrace the idea that there is a creator and that if there's a creator that has created this world, then his word is much above an authority over your word. And so just just the concept of worldview, I think, is very important for our children to know that any information they get at school is going to be biased through some worldview filter. Can you give us some common arguments that they may hear in a biology class? One of the things that, let me tell you what they may not hear. This is one of those things that's just kind of conveniently left out oftentimes. 
And I would want my student to know before they head off um, that this is often done. But professors will use the term evolution as a blanket term. And there are actually two different kinds of evolution. There is microevolution and there is macroevolution. And I didn't hear these concepts until I got to college myself. But what microevolution, micro simply means small, and evolution means it's change over time. So microevolution are those small changes that occur within a species. And, and this microevolution is a fact. Let me give you an example. Noah took two dogs on the ark. In fact, they may have even been wolves at that point. But look at all of the breeds of dogs that we have today, from the little bitty Chihuahua to the Great Dane St. Bernard. We have a lot of variation within a species, but it was a dog to begin with and it was a dog to end with. That is an example of microevolution. Macroevolution, macro means large. So these are those large jumps where it starts out as one organism and it ends up another organism. You know, maybe the dinosaur evolving into the bird, you know, that idea. A that whale is, into a cow. There I mean, you go. Or a cow into a whale. Exactly. Yeah. Those are examples of macroevolution. So what our professors often do is they'll just use the blanket term evolution and they will not distinguish. Now, I'm talking microevolution here. I'm talking macroevolution. For example, some of their best examples of evolution are just simply microevolution examples. You will see that famous chart in a textbook of the horse that has changed size over the years of time. And it was a small horse to begin with, and now we have the larger horses now. Well, it was a horse to begin with. It's a horse to end with. All that is is microevolution. And so they, some of their best examples that they can come up with just simply is microevolution. So I would want my child to know, okay, there is a difference. And he may just use the blanket term evolution, but you need to go, okay, what's he talking about? Micro versus macro. And another thing is, is just a, something that's often mm -hmm. left out and not talked about is how vivid of an imagination evolutionists have. They're very creative people. For instance, if you go into a museum, you will often see a, you know, maybe a skull of a in the anthropology department of the of the museum. And those skulls often have two colors to them. They're bicolored. And the one will be kind of bone colored and then there then another color may be a darker brown. And I've never seen a sign anywhere in a museum or whatever that tells you, okay, the reason this is bicolored skull is because what you look, see that looks like a real bone was what was actually found. And all of the other color was made up by our artist. And so, you know, I have gone into a, a zoo one time into the anthropology and they had one little section of the parietal bone skull in the very back, a very small section. And yet these these phenomenal uh, prehistoric features of this animal were created by the vivid imagination just simply by one little bone in the back. Now, that is something that's not often talked about, but our kids need to be aware that that is something that they do to kind of fill in the gaps, so to speak. Yeah, you know, Jan, those are some very important distinctions that you made regarding micro and macro evolution. And, you know, when I'm teaching students on Darwinian evolution, when I teach them that distinction between micro and macro evolution, suddenly I can see the mm. lights going off and suddenly now they understand where the problems are yes. with Darwinian evolution. That's a very important distinctions yes. that you bring up. What are some of the ways a student can begin to practice for the big moment when they set out? for the college campus. I often like to use the acronym EQUIP 
because what we really are doing is we are equipping our students for the battle that they're going to face out there. And so if you have a pen or paper here, write this acronym down. It's E-Q-U-I-P. And the E simply is evaluate. And what are the two sides of the issue, you know, that they're going to be faced with? Q is question. You know, what do they use as their arguments to back up what they're saying? You know, are they legitimate arguments or are they opinion arguments? You know, what are the arguments? List them out. U stands for understand. And that is going back to understanding the worldview of both sides of the issue. You um, understanding is this worldview coming from a humanistic worldview or is it coming from a theistic worldview? And that's very important. The I stands for erupt. And they're really I-R-R-U-P-T, which just means throw it out, erupt. That portion of science that does not line itself with Scripture, and this is something that goes back to what we were talking about last week or last show. If the same God created the world, also authored the word, those two cannot oppose because God cannot contradict himself. And so if it does not line up with Scripture, then it's, it's false science, Okay, they may be calling it science, but it's not true science. Okay? And that really is important in that when you look at science, scientific theories have just changed and been thrown out so that much over so time true. that we're, we're more justified to hold to the scripture as the judgment yes. bar as opposed to saying science is the standard. The scriptures have a lot better record absolutely kevin that is <laughs> so, absolutely correct so, and, and and somehow jan and pat science and scripture can can come together and it's, it's really neat when we see how that in fact can be the case when we see that integration yes by the way look at what science says and look at what the scripture says kind of a thing so lights go on when they uh when they see that as well absolutely the p for our equip is prepare them polish them practice perfect it promote it, it activities until they profess possessorship. Now, how do you like that for a mouthful there? Mm. In other words, you know, if you ask your child why they don't believe in evolution, if they give you any reason that resembles this, this is a very bad reason. Well, because my mom and dad don't believe in it. That means they have not taken possessorship for themselves. And these are the kids that are going to be eaten alive out there. They have got to know why they believe what they believe. It's not enough just because mom or dad believe it or don't believe it. Um, in fact, you know, that that little argument is what I call a you know, childish Christian cop out. And it's used and it's going to work until about junior high. And then, you know, junior hires, they don't believe anything mom or dad say. So, you know, that 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 argument is going to go by the wayside. So what are some of the things that they you could do to help uh, get them to really possess it for themselves, this this idea? And at one of the activities that I love to use is uh, taking a textbook, you know, maybe going to a used bookstore, half price books or whatever's in your area and find a biology textbook, secular biology textbook. And open it up side by side with the word of God and do a, a he said, she said, he said, being God, she said, being Mother Nature, whatever, and and practice discernment. And with three different color of highlighters, you know, take you a blue highlighter and a, a pink highlighter and a yellow highlighter 
and with the uh, blue highlighter, highlight those items that are truth, those items that are in the textbook that also line up with the Word of God. Highlight those as truth. And then take your yellow highlighter and read that text. Because remember, the ninth through 12th grade, that's the rhetoric stage, rhetoric stage, where they can practice discernment. They can read a passage and figure it out. And um, take that yellow highlighter and and make them uh, highlight those that are just opinions of the author. And then a pink highlighter or whatever, orange, whatever color floats your boat, and make that what is false. And then have the child look at it and go, you know what, look at this. Uh, this kind of goes back to that, what we were talking about last week, can lies and other mixed veggie truths. They're going to be asked to swallow the whole thing, but our kids have got to discern, okay, look, I can accept everything in blue. Yellow is totally opinion, and pink is not lining up with the scriptures at all. And let them see for themselves, you know, what can be accepted and, and what needs to be thrown out, what needs, what lines up with the word and what doesn't line up with the word. And then a, a great extension to that is those passages that were yellow, which were opinion, get you a list of rhetoric devices that is often used, appeal to belief, appeal to ridicule, appeal to authority. You know, there's there's a whole list of rhetoric devices that um, when people give their opinion that they are using, you know, appeal to belief would be, you know, most people believe X, so therefore X is true. You know, majority rules here. And have your child take those yellows and try to figure out what type of rhetorical device that that author was trying to use. Another appeal to ridicule um, fallacy, which says, you know, um, ridicule or mockery is substituted for evidence in an argument. Kind of like the professor I was talking about last week who on his website, you know, were calling people wacko parents that were creationists and, and things like that. He was appealing to ridicule. The appeal to authority that would be what you often hear. No legitimate scientist will refute Darwinian evolution. Well, that's what we call appeal to authority. Mm. Or if I just quote someone who's maybe a popular author, and yes. that ends the argument. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. As far as appealing to authority and, and, and this idea that they will often hear about no legitimate scientist will refute Darwinian evolution. If you have your pens still handy, you need to write this website down descentfromdarwin.org so it's www.descentfromdarwin.org descent from darwin all one word and it is where 700 scientists over 700 scientists myself including have phds and we have gone and we have signed the petition there's been a line drawn in the sand and we are crossing that line and we're saying you know what we do not believe that the complexity of life could be accounted for by Darwinian evolution. So when you hear uh, a professor say, no legitimate scientist, you know, show them this website or don't show them, whichever, but at least know the website exists. We're over 700. And when I say PhDs, they show not only their name, it shows our degree and it shows the university we're from. And we are talking very, very distinguished universities that some of these professors are coming from. And there are plenty of legitimate scientists who do not uh, believe in Darwinian evolution to to account for the complexity of life. And then there's the sister website to that of where doctors, physicians, and surgeons have come together and have signed their name. 
And that particular website is www.doctorsdoubtingdarwin.org. Fantastic. Well, Jan, what about some students who find themselves in a science class at a public university and they're asked to articulate on tests or projects Mm -hmm. the uh, specific areas of Darwinian evolution? How should they respond? Okay, that you know that is such a great question, Pat, because I have gotten that question from many a student going, what are we supposed to say? Because I don't embrace this idea of Darwinian evolution. But if I don't say it on the test, I'm going to get a, a bad grade. Well, let's, re- let's remember what the test is there for. The test is not asking you your personal beliefs. It's not asking you to, um, you know, sign it in stone and blood. What that test wants to know is, do you have a con- an understanding of the concept And therefore, you can word your question, you know, you could say they believe or, um, you know, scientists, some scientists believe or whatever. But definitely write the answer that the teacher is wanting you to write. Otherwise, you are going to get a failing grade. Yeah, Jan, you know, there is nothing wrong with learning Darwin's theory of evolution because in order order for us to really critique it and argue against it, we've really got to understand uh, what they're saying, and there's too many Christians out there who are, you know, attacking a straw man when it comes to Darwinian evolution. They don't have a good understanding of it, mm-hmm. and so when it's their time to really critique it, they're presenting really false arguments for it. And that is true, and and that leads me to another concept, Pat. That often I call it trying to stamp out Christian ignorance. There are good arguments against evolution, but there are some bad arguments that Christian use, and one of those arguments that I guess is one of my my pet peeves is the fact that Darwin renounced evolution on his deathbed. I've heard that one. Yeah, I think probably 75% of our listeners have heard that one. And um, that is a bad argument to use for evolution. It's simply an argument used because you don't know what else to say. And so you fall back on that. And my point is, it does not matter what Darwin did or didn't do. And actually, we have quite a bit of evidence that it never happened, that he did not renounce it. And That's he right. did not have a conversion. And so I'll go into that in just a minute. And it, it would be bearing false witness against someone absolutely. to spread you are absolutely right. a rumor. The ends doesn't justify the means. And so we need to be very careful of our sources and not spread not only lies, but urban legends. and Exactly, and exactly. Like that. And that's a bad argument because even if he did, it's just man's opinion. What do we care about man's opinion? We care about God's opinion. But some of the evidence that is showing that that, that has been a false legend is the fact that Henrietta, his daughter, and Francis, his son, were at his deathbed for days prior to his death. And they said, this is not true. He never renounced anything. We need to stamp out Christian ignorance and, and come up with some arguments that are good, solid arguments. And, and let's bury that one, so to speak. You know, Jan, and a great resource that you mentioned is the DVD that's produced by Probe Ministries. Yes. Tell us about that resource that we have for Christians. Absolutely. Uh, Pat, this is a, a DVD called Redeeming Darwin. It has several um, scientists on it that are being interviewed. It is perfect for even small groups or youth groups. It's four chapters, basically. And we offer curriculum support material with a leader's guide so that you can take this information and and it will take you step by step through it and and really lay out Darwinian evolution for someone, who, for the layperson. Let me say it that way, for the layperson. Yeah, it's a great resource. I've seen most of it. 
Got some top-notch scientists on it, including my guest here, Dr. Jan Chatham. So that's a great resource you can get at probe.org or at evidenceandanswers.org. Not only with this interview, there's uh, over 150 other interviews uh, from our past shows that you can listen to. And there are some other top scientists whom we have interviewed on this topic as well, including Dr. Jonathan Wells, Dr. Jay Richards, Ray Bolin, Hugh Ross, and several others. So it's a great resource, evidenceandanswers.org. Well, Jan, thanks for being on the show. Let's Thank do it again sometime. Thank you so much, Pat, for having me. It's been my pleasure. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. There's a new feature on our website called iShows, where you can download each individual show for just 250 on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want. And we've got some of the top scholars on there. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.